Steve will help us out. Um, but as I say, I'm glad it's cold because you lot are going to have to listen and you're going to be perhaps more awake than if it was warm. Why don't you open up your Bibles? Today we're in Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 11 and we are in verses 12 to 21. 12 to 21. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but pretty much any translation you have, um, any decent translation you have, will stick to the same sort of phrasing. So here we go. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray as we come to consider your word this afternoon, that we would hear it understanding that this is not like any other word in existence. This is not like considering the words of wise men and women, but this is the very word of God. And in it is spirit and life. In it is power to transform. And we pray, Lord God, today that by your spirit, you would transform us. That we, under the ministry of the word today, would be more shaped into the likeness of Christ than we were yesterday. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now in the land of Egypt, in the land of Egypt, in the days of Moses, before the final plague came upon Egypt, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, telling them all that had to be done in preparation for the Passover. We read in Exodus 12 verses 11 and 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The people needed to be ready to leave Egypt immediately. If you remember the, the story, there was no time to be lost and the Lord commanded that the people were to prepare a type of bread to get away with. How many of you remember what he commanded them? What kind of bread was it to be? Unleavened bread. Unleavened bread because leaven in the bread makes the bread rise but it takes longer to prepare. And so the Lord commanded them to only prepare unleavened 
bread so that they could eat it on the way and in haste and be out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord also commanded them in that chapter in Exodus, he commanded them to actually commemorate the Passover, didn't he? That every year, that at the same time of year in the month of Nisan, his people were to commemorate what he did in Egypt. Every year, year after year after year. And this festival is called, of course, Passover. Passover. And interestingly, at the season of Passover, every family, each family, in remembrance of Passover in Egypt, had to cleanse their house of all leaven. How many of you have heard of the ritual called Bedekat Kametz? Bedekat Kametz, that is the cleansing of your house of all leaven. Can you imagine trying to do that? All leaven, every Hovis loaf, every King's Mill brown, it's got to get out of the house. Bedekat Kametz before Passover begins. In Exodus 12, 19, it says, For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. And so Jews around the world, even today, they practice this thing called Bedekat Kametz, where all leaven must be cleansed from their house. They've got to go around, they go around with a candle and they search for it and they make sure there is none in the house by the time Passover begins. Roughly 1,500 years after that first command of Yahweh to Moses and Aaron, Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem as Passover approaches and he performs Bedekat Kametz in his own house. That's what we're looking at today. He cleanses the temple of leaven. This is the Lord's own Bedekat Kametz. Now, of course, he didn't cleanse the temple of the kind of leaven that you make bread rise with. It was a different kind of leaven. But it is mentioned in your New Testament elsewhere. If you open up your Bible to Luke 12 and verse 1, it says this. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? What is the leaven of the Pharisees in Luke 12.1? Hypocrisy. Someone said that. Thank you, Yvonne. Hypocrisy is the leaven of the Pharisees, it says. Hypocrisy. How many of you know what hypocrisy is all about? Anybody ever been a hypocrite? I have. The word hypocrite actually comes from the Greek word hypocrisis. Okay? Hypocrisis, which actually means acting. It's the acting of a theatrical part. So if you're a hypocrite, you're a play actor. That's what that means. You're a play actor. Isn't that wonderful to understand that correctly? A hypocrite is a, a play actor. It's somebody who's playing a part. It's wearing a mask. Yeah. There you go. There's the happy mask and the in the theater. That's it, to wear a mask. That's literally what it means originally. And so the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. It was to wear a mask, to be a faker. 
And there's so much packed into this passage of scripture that we are going to try to get to today, uh, but equally I need to release you at some point. So we're going to try and be tactical in the way that we handle this text um, so that we are able to leave encouraged and built up uh, without you leaving and missing your dinner. So we need a key. We need a key to help us understand this text, okay? The key to understanding this biblical text is to follow Mark's leading. Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture, isn't it? It's always the best interpreter of Scripture. And so we need to understand what Mark is trying to tell us here. There is a key that Mark gives us to help us to understand these two stories of the fig tree and the temple. Because the fig tree that is cursed by Christ and the temple that he cleanses in this passage are inextricably linked. They're tied together by Mark himself. These two narratives form what's known as a Markan sandwich. Have you ever heard of the Markan sandwich before? If you remember earlier on in the series, we covered one of these. And what happens is where Mark, he will include two stories that tie together. And they'll come one after the other. It'll sort of go A, B, A. It's like a motif in a musical piece. You have form A, there's one story. Then he puts in another story, which seems disconnected and random. And then he'll follow it with the same story that he had before that. A, B, A. Fig tree, temple, fig tree, okay? Every time he does this in the Gospel of Mark, he wants us to interpret A through B and B through A. So he wants you to understand what's going on in the temple through what happens to the fig tree. Does that make sense? It's a Mark and sandwich. You've got the bread of the fig tree. You've got the meat of the temple. Those two stories are not random and disconnected. They're intertwined. They're supposed to tell you something about the other. Does that make sense? It's a little motif known as the Mark and sandwich. And so this helps us to begin with not to see the fig tree and the cursing of the fig tree as just some random thing that Mark kind of remembered and just threw in there willy-nilly. No. It's supposed to help us understand something about the temple cleansing, okay? The fig tree is the temple. The fig tree is the temple, and the temple is the fig tree in Mark's eyes, okay? So there's our key. There's our key for understanding this text today. Because many people throughout history have really struggled with this passage. They've found it difficult because basically Jesus isn't being very Jesus-y. He's not being very Christ-like. He's getting angry. He's throwing tables over. He's chucking people out of the temple. He's cursing fig trees. It doesn't seem very Jesus-y to people. And so people have struggled with this text. In fact, how many of you have heard of Bertrand Russell? Bertrand Russell was an atheist philosopher, a British man uh, in the last century. And he was similarly minded. He was offended about this text. And he said... Um, he said one of his reasons for not being a Christian in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, was because of Jesus' actions here with the fig tree. He said Jesus was a man who expressed vindictive fury towards an innocent plant, manifesting behavior that is not consistent with even a righteous man, let alone the Son of God. And even 
many who were more sympathetic to Christ, even Christians, have struggled with this miracle because it is a miracle. It is supernatural. He cursed the fig tree and the next day it was withered up from the roots. Uh, so this is a miracle and it's the only destructive miracle, arguably, in the Bible. I think you could also argue for the other miracle in Mark of the pigs being thrown into the, or the demons entering the pigs and going into, you could probably argue that's destructive, but most consider this one, the cursing of the fig tree, to be Jesus' only destructive miracle. And even Christians have struggled with it. They, they see Jesus maybe as displaying a little bit of petulance here. Like he's, he's frustrated, he's angry, and he's cursing the fig tree out of a fit of rage. Some in more recent times have struggled for a different reason. We live in a time where there is great concern about the environment, and rightly so. We're concerned to see our, uh, the natural world around us flourish. And some have struggled with this passage because Jesus kills a living thing. Jesus kills a tree, which seems to have done nothing wrong except to have no figs when it wasn't the season for figs. So this doesn't seem very Jesus-y. So let's first handle the question. Because all of this, for me, is explained by why Jesus ex approached the fig tree in the first place. Why did he approach the fig tree in the first place? Let's answer this question. Because the text tells us why Jesus approached the fig tree. It doesn't say Jesus approached the fig tree to show everybody a lesson about the temple. Though that's true, the text tells us that Jesus was hungry. He was hungry. So he approaches the fig tree because he wanted something to eat. Let's just park that for one moment and just appreciate that Christ is both man and both God. That though he was God, he still had a human nature. And in that human nature, he had appetites. He, he became hungry. And I know this is such a simple truth. It's easy to miss. But when somebody's experienced hunger, how many of you understand that person can sympathize with those who are hungry? In a way that somebody who's never hungered can't. I'll tell you a very quick story. Just to illustrate the point. When I was younger... I was in various bands I used to play. I was a musician. We'd play gigs in pubs and things like that. And I, I remember as a teenager playing a gig in the upstairs room of a pub in Wolverhampton. And as we're setting up, we plugged in all of our instruments. All of the amplifiers were plugged in. We were doing a sound check. And our band manager was overseeing the sound check and just making us each one of us test our instruments and our microphones ready for people to arrive. My guitar was plugged in and my manager said, okay, Graham, check your microphone. And so I tapped, I went to tap the microphone. And as I did that, I felt an enormous crash on the back of my head and on, on my neck. And I couldn't let go of the microphone. And then all the lights went out and all the power went off to the upstairs room. What had happened was I thought my friend had taken his guitar and smashed it over my back for no reason. But what had actually happened was I'd been electrocuted. <laughs> I'd been electrocuted and the power that went through my body shut the electricity off to the gig venue. It was quite severe electric shock. Uh, <laughs> and so I kind of, I, I, I sort of was shocked. Uh, they managed to get the power back on again. And the band manager 
said something to the effect of, stop being such a big fairy, man up and test your mic again. Okay? So I said, okay, I'll do it again. <laughs> Same thing happened again. Power outage, smoke coming out of the ears. And so this time, my band manager, who's a big cockney guy, he, he said, give it here, took the guitar off me, and he went to touch it. And the words that came out of his mouth, I'll, I won't repeat them here, but suffice to say, after that happened to him, he was much more sympathetic to me. <laughs> so you can see when somebody experiences the same sorts of things we experience, difficulties or just appetites in general, you can see how there can be an empathy there. And so it's no small matter that Christ knows what it is to suffer hunger. He knows what it is to be tempted in every way but without sin. And so we know that our God, in a way that no other God can, no other false idol, can empathize with you in your struggles like Jesus can. Isn't that wonderful? And so Jesus was hungry. That's why he goes to the fig tree. He goes looking for fruit. But surely, Jesus grew up in Palestine. This was his homeland. He's familiar with everything that goes on in the area, just like you are. Just like you know what season daffodils grow in. Just like you know what seasons the clematis will grow on your wall. Don't you think Jesus would know when the season of figs was? But Mark says it wasn't the season for figs. So why is Jesus going to a fig tree looking for figs out of season? This doesn't seem, this seems strange, doesn't it? And there are a number of theories about this question. There are a variety of different theories and I won't take too long to go through them. But the first is this. Um, some believe that Jesus wasn't actually looking for figs, but was instead looking for these little buds that grow on fig trees in early spring. They call them pagim in, in Israel. And they're not particularly appetizing, but they are edible. Some believe that Jesus was going to the tree looking for these pagim, and he didn't find any. Uh, and he then cursed the tree because he didn't find any of those little buds. Another theory, which is taught by a Professor Kelso, who was uh, a, an expert in ancient Palestinian history, um, he has a different theory. And I think this one's potentially more accurate. He says that though it's true that in Israel the fig season comes in autumn, not spring, not Passover time. He says though that's true, there are a few rare species of fig tree that bear fruit out of season. And so Kelso taught that the final test of whether a tree had fruit wasn't so much what time of year it was, but rather whether the foliage was in full bloom. And so the only way to check if a tree really had fruit was to say, does it have leaves? If it has lots of leaves, then there's a relatively good bet, maybe that it's one of these rare species that's bearing fruit out of season. And so that's why Jesus went to check, because it was giving the impression that it might have had fruit. And I believe that to be the case. I think Jesus would have had a local knowledge about the trees, and he went to check the tree to see if there was any fruit on it. It makes sense that he at least expected there to be fruit, doesn't it? Jesus expected that there might be fruit, and he saw the presence of foliage, giving the impression of fruit, but there was no fruit. The outer appearance of this tree, therefore, was deceptive. 
It was deceptive. There was nothing edible for him to eat, but it was giving the impression that there might be. And so he curses the tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And of course, the next day, the disciples find the tree withered up to the roots. And so this is to say that Jesus' curse had an immediate and a supernatural outcome. Okay, there are some people that teach that Jesus said these words, but you know, he just spoke to the tree and the tree was just kind of fulfilling its own nature that it hadn't borne any fruit and he was just saying well you won't produce any more fruit and the tree's like wasn't going to do that anyway but no this is a supernatural curse the the, the tree's withered up from the roots the very next day so we can now see why Jesus approached the tree we can see that he would have expected fruit on it Um, we can see that it had no fruit so we can see now um, first off some of the reasons behind why Jesus might have done this But was it wrong for him to kill the tree? Why curse the tree? Well, there's a number of reasons for this. J.C. Ryle, who was the Bishop of Liverpool in the last century, he makes the point, I think it's quite a good one, that we've got no more right to object to the cursing of the fig tree than we do about the daily offering of a lamb. Under the Mosaic law, we know that an innocent lamb must be killed every, every day in the temple for the sins of the people didn't it? The lamb was innocent. It had to be without blemish. And so we have no more right to complain about the fig tree than we do about the lamb. Even, even more so, the lamb is a, is a creature. It, has, uh, it, it is an animal. It's not a plant. And I do believe the Bible differentiates in terms of the value of life between trees and plants. You know, in this day and age, that, that boundary and that line is maybe being blurred out. And people see Less difference in each area. People might argue for a tree being every bit as valuable as an animal, even a human. I think this is unbiblical. I think this is pagan. Um, I think the Bible does make a distinction and does make the point that animal life is more valuable than plant life. And indeed that human life is more valuable than animal life. I think this is the way that that we understand things. Uh, But it's not to say that those lives are not valuable. So we have no right to complain about the fig tree if we won't complain about the, the offering for sin. But what justifies the slaughter of those lambs? What was it? What justifies it? It was, a, it was atonement for sin, exactly. So that justifies the death of this innocent lamb is that it's atoning for sin. It has a purpose. And what else did the atonement of those lambs point to? It pointed ahead to Christ, didn't it? It pointed ahead to the actual Passover lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so therefore, that lamb's life had a purpose. It pointed towards something greater. And it's also true that the death of the fig tree, the withering of the fig tree, is not some random act of petulance by Jesus. Jesus curses the fig tree because Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet and this fig tree's death is pointing towards something that he wants people to get. Just as Jeremiah had his yoke, do you remember Jeremiah wore a yoke to prophesy about the coming yoke of slavery under Babylon? And also we read of Amos, had a plumb line, and of course there's the story of Hosea. and We won't go into what that uh, was all about, but these are called object lessons, prophetic object lessons. Jeremiah had his yoke. Amos had the plumb line. Christ has the fig tree. And very often in these 
prophetic object lessons. The lesson is about God's judgment upon the apostate nation of Israel. Very often that's the message and it's no different here. The fig tree's withering up was Jesus' pronouncement of judgment and destruction upon the temple. Upon the temple, upon the apostate religion of the Jews at that time. And I think that reason is extends to today. I think we can look at this lesson of the fig tree even as the visible church today. And we can say, goodness me, we bet to be sure that we don't become like that apostate house of the temple in Israel. That we don't become like that fig tree, putting forth all the leaves, all of the visible outward appearance of godliness and holiness, but inside we're rotten to the core because Christ will curse and destroy any false hypocritical religion just like he did with the temple, so will he do with the apostate church. And so this fig tree, though it was withered to the roots, its story remains in scripture and goes on encouraging us as the church today, not only to show leaves of outward religiosity, but inward holiness. And so this is far from an act of petulance and rage by Jesus Christ. It's a prophetic miracle to, to warn us even today and certainly to warn those in the first century in the Jewish religion. Because the temple, as I said earlier, is the fig tree. The temple is the fig tree. It had all the appearance of fruitfulness on the outside. It looked incredible. In fact, during Jesus' time, the temple was actually still being built. It took about 80 years, even more, for that final temple under Herod to be completed. And it towered over the city of Israel. I don't think we fully understand today when we look at how the, the Dome of the Rock on top of Mount Moriah, I don't think we understand how imposing the actual temple would have looked because we just don't have a reference now. Um, but Josephus was a historian in the first century and he tells us a little bit uh, about the temple how many of you have read his account before it's incredible he says that the temple was gold-plated on the outside and that when the sun rose in the morning the light would beam off the outside of the temple practically blind you you know it was just awe-inspiring it had big horns on top of it to stop pigeons and stuff pooping all over it but it just would have looked really imposing um, he said it could be seen from miles around. It just would have been such a beautiful structure. And you had all the priests all dressed in their priestly robes. Uh, it would have been quite a sight. And many people would come to Jerusalem, of course, every year for all of the, uh, the festivals and the feasts and things like that. It was the center of the Jewish world. But it was just like this fig tree. It was rotten on the inside. Beauty on the outside, rottenness on the inside and this is what Jesus came and saw when he inspected the temple in our last uh, preach when we went through this he came to the temple and he looked around all of the buildings he inspected it the Lord returned to the temple and inspected it for fruit and he found nothing all he found was rottenness idolatry and evil of every kind. The leaven of the Pharisees indeed. It was bad. 
And I want to take a moment to just say that the Lord is going to inspect his temple on the day of judgment as well. The Lord will come to your temple. The Bible says in the book of Corinthians that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Just as there was a temple in Jerusalem, now God's habitation is with his people. And of course we have to remember that the Lord will come to our lives to seek fruit. The Lord wants fruitfulness, doesn't he? And so we all must, must remember this, that there is a picture for us in this story, that we want to be ready for our Lord, the vine dresser, to come and inspect our fruit because our lives belong to him. Our, our bodies are his. We belong to him. In fact, things were really bad at the time when Jesus came into the temple. Things were very, very bad. We actually have historical record of how corrupt things were in the, te in the temple. We've got the scriptural witness and we've got historical witnesses. In fact, the Jewish Talmud, how many of you heard of the Talmud? Um, the Talmud says that the temple priests at Jesus' time, it calls them sons of Eli. Who were the sons of Eli? Hophni and Phinehas, do you remember them? Hophni and Phinehas, they weren't very nice guys, were they? They weren't stand-up guys. These guys were sleeping with temple prostitutes. They defiled the, the house of the Lord. And in the end, they brought judgment upon the house of Israel. And these priests in the time of Jesus were called the sons of Eli. They were that bad. And the historian Josephus, he says, you know, Caiaphas, the high priest at Jesus' time, Josephus says that Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas, they would send their heavies round to the houses of the lower priests and have them beaten if they didn't pay their tithes on time. He'd have them beaten if they didn't pay their tithes on time. And Josephus actually says that some of these lower priests and their families starved to death because they couldn't afford the tithes. So you can see these people were not honouring the Lord. There was the outward appearance of religiosity, the outward appearance of truth, but on the inside, it was all hypocrisy. It was all fake. It was all an act. These were the sons of Satan, let alone the priests of God Most High. And Jesus enters into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, indeed. And what does he find? He finds hypocrisy. He finds false religion. He finds money changes, people extorting other people, making them pay more than they should have done for the doves and for the pigeons, for the offerings. He finds money changers. He sees all this. He sees all of this greed, all of these worldly activities happening in the house of God, but no prayer, no worship, buying and selling in the house of God. He sees everything but worship. Turn the house of God into what? A den of robbers. But my house shall be what? A house of prayer for all nations, Jesus says. But what was it? A den of robbers. I think it's important to just take a moment and see that it's not that having an outward appearance of holiness is a bad thing. If you're a true Christian, something about your life will look different than the world, won't it? There will be something distinctive about the life of every Christian. But we have to be guarded 
against just having that outward exterior appearance of godliness and ignoring what's going on inside. And many people have solid enough doctrine. They could tell you about the Trinity. They could tell you about who Jesus is. Many people are members of churches. They go along regularly. They give to charity. Maybe they're part of a a serving team on Sundays. But what about the inner life? What about the inner life? Is there prayer? Is there worship? Is there a real holiness on the interior life? Is there worship of God in the hidden life? We have to ask ourselves those questions. I think those are challenging questions to ask. But I think they're good ones. We always must examine ourselves brothers and sisters, just to make sure. Amen? There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Examine ourselves just to make sure it's not all leaves and no fruit. And so Christ drives the money changers and the buyers out of the temple. Not just the sellers. Did you catch that? He throws out the buyers and the sellers. He overturns the tables, throws over the seats, chucks them all out. He won't even allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Some people make this parable about capitalism. And they say, well, look, Jesus is just, you know, he's angry about the extortion. He's angry about these people, you know, earning more than they should have done. Well, if that was the case alone, why does he throw the buyers out as well as the sellers? Throws them all out. He throws them all out, doesn't he? I think he was angry at the extortion. Absolutely. But I think he was more angry that the house of God, which should have been a house of prayer, is being used for all these worldly means. He throws them all out. Won't even allow anyone to carry anything through the court of the Gentiles. I want you to notice something here really quickly. I want you to see what Jesus did. Notice Jesus didn't enter into dialogue with these people. These people who were carrying out worldly practices, fleshly, carnal practices in the house of God. He doesn't say, hey, listen, pull up a chair. Let's just have a conversation. Let's dialogue, you and I. I want to understand what's going on here. I want to be generous. He doesn't do any of that. He makes a noise. He makes a fuss. He gets angry and he condemns what they're doing in no uncertain terms. He throws them all out of the house of God. And they're out. Job done. There's actually not much trouble that comes from it for Jesus, is there? He gets the job done. That's how you deal with apostasy. You chuck apostates out. You don't dialogue with them. And I think we're seeing in our nation right now what happens when you get the apostate to pull up a pew and you dialogue with them. Instead of kicking them out. (laughs) Let the reader understand. And I think there's also an internal value for us here. Because on an individual level, when you look at how Christ deals with the buyers and the sellers and the extortioners in the temple... Do you see how we ought to deal with inward dwelling sin? 
do you see how you've got to deal with corruption and idolatry in your own life? I think we can see something there, can't we? We don't muck about. We don't let sin get a foothold, but we clear the temple. We cleanse the temple of our bodies of sin. We don't allow it to foothold. I think that's really true uh, for each of our personal lives as well. And Jesus accomplishes what he sets out to do. And I think that's the case with us. When we go to war with our sin, you know, as uh, John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. When we go to war with idolatry in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will accomplish more than if we try and make compromise. Does that make sense? If we start compromising with our, our idols, each of you have sins that easily beset and each of you is different from the other. Uh, so let's be careful not to judge one another too harshly. No one person walked in here the same as another. Each of us has different burdens to bear and different sins that we struggle with. And so let's be gracious with one another as we are on this journey together. But at the same time, let's not compromise with our sins. Let's be at war with the lusts of the flesh. And Jesus accomplishes what he sets out to do. There's no reason why we can't accomplish victory over indwelling sin in our lives because we have the same spirit that raised him from the dead in us. I think often as we, we overestimate the trouble that's going to come from actually taking a stand and doing a Jesus and clearing out the temple, chucking the tables over, taking a stand for truth and not backing down. We think, how much trouble is that going to get me in with the world? How many friends am I going to lose? You know, what's my reputation going to look like if I don't budge on this issue? Take, for example, I've talked before about the issue of abortion, okay, which I believe is the great moral issue of our times. You know, over 200,000 babies every year. I think it's one in four pregnancies ended in abortion. It's unacceptable. Okay? Why are Christian ministers silent on this issue? Why are politicians more willing to speak out than Christians on this issue? I'll tell you why. Because Christians are worried that if they do, they'll get more trouble than if they don't. We need to take example from Jesus here in the cleansing of the temple. I really believe that. I actually believe that the trouble is going to be far worse if we compromise on these issues than if we don't. And so, Jesus, to finish with, performs Bedekat Kametz. He cleanses the temple of the leaven of the Pharisees. He throws them all out. That's what he's doing right here. Throwing out the leaven of the Pharisees from the house of God. And immediately after, we read that the chief priests and the scribes, they heard about it, didn't they? And guess what? They sought to destroy him. It doesn't just say they were angry. They sought to actually end his life immediately from that moment. These leaders, these high priests, they had such grandiose titles, didn't they? Always beware of people who give themselves grandiose titles. There's usually some reason for that that isn't too holy. And so they hear about it and they would rather do murder than repent. Did you catch that? They've had the sin of the people exposed. They've had their own failings exposed. And what's their immediate thought? How do we kill this guy? How do we get rid of this guy? Their sin is exposed and immediately they'd rather kill than repent. 
And let me make a point here. Their response to having their sins exposed is the exact same response that every carnal human on the planet has apart from the grace of God. Apart from the light of the Holy Spirit, that's the response of every human being to having their sin exposed. Jesus says in John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Did you catch that? People love the darkness rather than the light. People don't naturally wake up or born into this world going, do you know what? I just love having my sin exposed. (laughs) I love to believe that I'm a sinner in need of grace. Nobody is born into the world seeing it that way. They actually love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Did you catch that? Who's the light of the world? Christ. They hate the light and do not come to the light lest their works be exposed. Only those who are living by the truth, that is those who are living according to God's word, love the light. Yes. Amen. And because for these guys, having their sin exposed, it prevented them from doing what they loved, which was what? Having power, having a show of religion, but not having the inner fruit. It stopped them having their fun. It exposed their deeds of darkness. And I would say today, if you're born again, you don't fear having your sins exposed by the Holy Spirit. You don't fear opening up to brothers and sisters about stuff going on in your life because you recognize that whenever we open up to the Lord and confess sin, guess what comes from that? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, repentance, peace with God. Just as Jesus, the light of the world, entered the temple on that day and drove out idolaters, he's still cleansing temples today, isn't he? He's still cleansing your temple. He's still cleansing my temple of idolatry and hypocrisy. And it's a journey you won't finish until you go to the grave. He's always going to be helping you, working with you through the power of the Spirit to cleanse your life of sin. We must as well remember that Jesus' curse upon the fig tree was borne out, wasn't it? It wasn't just a warning. In AD 70, just 40 years after his death and resurrection, the temple fell. It had only been completed four years earlier. And at its completion, they sacrificed 235,000 lambs. Insane, isn't it? Imagine that. Four years later, gone raised to the ground by the Roman army. And Jesus' prophecy came to pass. It's never been rebuilt. And Jesus said, didn't he, on that day when he cleansed the court of the Gentiles, he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Many at the time thought that Jesus was going to come and he was going to cleanse the temple of the Gentiles, that he was going to get rid of all the Romans, of all the Gentiles that were trampling over the city of God. But instead, he cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. He opened up a way of salvation for you, for me, for every tribe, tongue and nation in this world. And I want to finish on that note and ask you whether you yourself have considered 
Christ as your Lord, Christ as your Savior, because he is the vine dresser. He is the gardener. He is the one who will inspect the fruits of every life born into this world. And so, brothers and sisters, let's consider that today. Let's allow the Lord to speak to us about this. The Lord wants us to what? Bear fruit. He wants us to be fruitful. Let's stand. Let's put our hands out in front of us just now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to yourself and you've called us to be fruitful. And so, Lord, today, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would reap a mighty harvest from our lives, not through our own strength and our own works, but by your grace alone. Father, we repent of any idolatry or any hypocrisy that remains in our lives. Father, we we ask for your forgiveness for that. And Lord, we pray that your church in these days would not be like the temple in Jerusalem. It would not be like those corrupt Jewish leaders. But Lord, that you, by the power of your spirit, would bring a revival in this nation that you would bring a true revival of the Holy Ghost to the United Kingdom. And Father, that we would enter into a season of fruitfulness once again. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're going to sing a final song together. So if you'd like to remain standing, let's worship the Lord together. And then afterward, we're going to have some teas and coffees to keep you warm in the cafe and there are also some donuts as well so please do stick around Um, if you'd like prayer for anything at all today as well if there's been something in the message that you really feel you would like ministry for we're going to have some prayer over in the corner so I'm going to ask Lynn um, to to go and be one of our ministry team and also uh, can I ask Darren would you mind for the men Darren is also going to pray if you're a gent and you'd like prayer Um, over in the corner so if there's anything today you've really felt the Holy Spirit just nudge you on a little bit or if it's something you've come in with like prayer for healing or whatever it is please feel free to go and get prayer from from uh, our ministry team let's let's sing to the Lord